Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm a feminist, but if Pretty Patel asked me, to lend her a copy of Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, I'd tell her to fuck off. (laughs) Um, Pretty Patel, by the way, Rachel Bloom, is our very vicious Home Secretary. Uh, Her policies about who may enter this country and how they may be treated if they enter this country are absolutely repugnant. And that's why I will not be lending her my extensive collection of Virginia Woolf, Maya Angelou and Mary Wollstonecraft were she to come knocking on the door asking for it, which she wouldn't because she's not a feminist. She should read those books, but she can fucking buy them herself. (laughs) I'm a feminist, but the porn I watch is not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wow. Do you want to elaborate or we're going to just keep moving? I will just say it's it's uh, women in situations of power uh, where they are often not the ones in power sometimes. And if this were a real situation, uh, we would be in some uh, Me Too situations. I see. Ooh, I see. Yes. I see. Could you send me a link? <laughs> send me a link. Send me a link. I'm a feminist, but... One of my favorite memories of uh, being with Rachel Bloom, my co-pilot for today, was that we did a show together in Los Angeles. Uh, she came and guested on The Guilty Feminist. You, you'll remember this in L.A. And we were outside afterwards and we were all standing there. And a few people had, you know, sweetly come up after the show and asked for selfies. And um, so we'd done all that. And then we were just like having a nice chat standing on the sidewalk. And a man came up. And he sort of had his phone out to take a picture. And we all started doing this thing because he didn't quite look like he'd come out of the theatre or he was a guilty feminist. So we're all going, like, looking at each other like, no, you. No, he's probably here for you. He's probably for you. And I was like, Rachel, you know, you have this big TV show that I'm a big fan of. And Sarah had just been in the new Bridget Jones film. So I was going, it's probably you. And both of you were going, no, sure, it's you. It's your show. And And we were all, like, getting ready to sort of humbly take a selfie. And the guy just went, can you get off that star? It's Rodney Dangerfield. Right. <laughs> we were all kicked off a star on Hollywood Boulevard while a man took a picture of a dead white male misogynist comedian. Yes. And oh, I come remember- on. He said one of the greatest jokes of all times. Well, well he may said, have, but he also said no, a lot he of said, sexist jokes. No, total, such a sexist. Go he on, said, Ruby. my wife and I had 30 wonderful years and then we met. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that yeah. is, okay, that is funny. Um, yeah. I will give Rodney Deborah, Dangerfield that I, would, I remember that moment, and I would say in that moment, eh, we didn't get no respect. Hey, <laughs> hey, no respect in here. You know respect. Oh, respect. Can you do the bug eye, Rachel? I, one, I one just remember standing there with these two very glamorous, well-known women and feeling like, oh, I've just done this show and lots of fancy people had turned up in L.A. And I was like, oh, we've, you know, anytime you think in L.A. that you might be making it, Somebody comes up to tell you to step off the star, get your feet off the star of a white male misogynist comedian. And I just went, you you should never. But it was actually, it was such an iconic moment for me. And it's my favorite memory that I share with you, Rachel, even though it is not a feminist memory. I'm a feminist, but I've recommended numerous 
straight white men for writing jobs. Hmm. Uh, I have well, a lot of straight white male friends who are lovely, and I've definitely recommended them for jobs. Listen, as long as they didn't get the jobs, you're home and free. <laughs> Just send a little WhatsApp going, I had to do him a favor, but if you could hire this friend of mine who's a brown woman instead, I'd really like her. That's all you need to do. Yeah. They need. And, I, and just for the record, they're not the only people I recommend, but like I have. And I have a lot of friends who are those guys and they're the sweet versions, the sweet, nice versions. Uh, I understand. I understand. But I, um, but I just, that is something that I live with. I'm a feminist, but the other day, Steve Alley, who regular listeners know lives in our flat, uh, who's a Syrian man who is very much family to us, he told me the story. He said, uh, there was a bee in a spider's web and I pulled her out to save her and she stung me because she thought I was also attacking her. And I said, how did you know the bee was a girl and the spider was a boy? And he went, well, because the spider was the bad guy. And I was oh, like, oh, my wow. God. Wow. And then I immediately went, oh, my God. He's been living with me for three years. The reason he assumes this is he's been living in my feminist web. Ooh. I'm the spider. Oh, my God. Do you have a final mm -hmm. one, Rachel? I mean, I'm a feminist, but I love shoving my genderless potato of a daughter into a frilly dress occasionally because uh, it looks hilarious. Do you ever put a pink headband on her? We haven't done the headband thing yet, but like every kind of frilly thing made for a baby, it looks like they're a fashion clown. And so I have a little techno song I like singing when she's in one that goes, fashion clown, do, 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 fashion clown. And I kind of like try to make her walk a stupid little runway and then she throws up on it. Are you doing drag race with your baby, Rachel Bloom? I have been known to breastfeed and watch Drag Race. And it's so weird because she loves it. How like, weird that your you daughter know, would I, love Drag Race. It's such so a young weird. Like, I saw you like, judging I on Drag her. Race. I saw you judging yeah. on Drag Race. I was so impressed. I was secretly pregnant then. You so it has been, I was. Yeah, I've never been more impressed yeah. by anyone. Wow. Anyone. Anyone. That's very yeah. impressive. I um, was like two and a half months pregnant and I was nauseous and I was dehydrated and I was in stilettos twerking with the pit crew and I was like, oh, I'm I'm about to faint. I'm pregnant. I shouldn't be doing this. As long um, as you didn't vomit on RuPaul. Then you didn't, but you know what? Mention? I think Ru would have understood. But yes, I no, did. No, totally. I think he no, would have asked you to sashay away. I think, I think he would <laughs> not have understood. She, um, so. Ruby and Rizzo, do you have an I'm a feminist part? Please, yes, if you have Actually, one. mine is connected to breastfeeding. Okay. Um, I'm a feminist, but the first party I went to after giving birth was New Year's Eve, and someone dared me to squirt my milk in the rice pudding secretly. <gasps> no. And I did it. Wow. That's nice. I did it, and so yeah. people drank my fluids without consent. <laughs> Stop. It's right the fuck yeah, now. That's, well, that's that a big may one. be the edgiest I'm a feminist butt we've ever had. And we've been this show's been really? going four and a half years. Oh my god. There's a B part to the story if you want to hear it. Yeah. Uh, how could okay. we not? Well, as I was doing it, Cuba Gooding Jr. came around the corner. Stop and, it. And he said, and I quote, Is that titty milk? I would love me some titty milk. Every time my girl gets pregnant. I drink her milk and I don't get sick for that year. So could I have some? So I thought this was just an opportunity for life to, from a distance, squeeze milk into Cuba Gooding Jr.'s mouth. I am perplexed, yeah. impressed, disturbed. <laughs> it's such a weird celebrity uh, story because it's like Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> That story is unbelievable. It's quite on brand for you, though. I feel like you're very, yeah. you, know, you're, you seem very burlesque and glamorous all the time. So yeah. I, if like if Ruby said it, I think I would be a little more surprised. Right. Uh, if I said it, everyone would be, no one believe it if I said it. It would well, be implausible. Yeah. Uh, exactly. If Rachel said it, I'd believe it. I'd believe I'd it. I'd believe would it. You, would you have done that, Rachel? Escorting in Cuba Gooding Jr.'s mouth, absolutely. Um, the rice pudding... I'm so neurotic. I'd be like, well, what if you I have a like health issue? I don't know about. I want to get. I don't want to get everyone sick. I joked before the world shut down. I was like, oh, I'm going to secretly feed my friends my breast milk and then be like, you've just drunk my titty juice. 
Um, but now I don't have that opportunity. I am going to tell my husband that Cuba Gooding Jr. says he doesn't get sick from it because he refuses to try my breast milk. Um, and I guess, and, but he loves Cuba Gooding Jr. and takes all his health. But he advice. loves Cuba Gooding Jr. Yes. Wow. Ruby, are yeah. either any breast milk stories or an I'm a feminist, but a welcome at this point. Well, I, I wouldn't breastfeed in. at all. Uh, because to me, it's like putting two fish hooks in connected to elephants and then shouting kitty up and they run in the opposite direction. So um, I couldn't. I shared a room at the hospital. It was National Health with another woman. And I didn't read the manual about what you're supposed to do with them. So I almost put Max on top of the woman to breastfeed off of her. I was pretty close. And then she said, I I was suddenly moved out of her room and I said, no, no, I don't mind sharing a room um, because, you know, just because I'm on TV. And they said, no, she wants you out. So, <laughs> yeah, she wants you out. So that was celebrity down the toilet. I also didn't know that my son fell asleep. I picked him up at one point and his head went backwards. So I thought, Jesus, he's dead. So I called the hospital. I said, my son is dead. Please let us in. Let us in. They sent an ambulance. We went in. We went in. They put heart pumps on him. They put like spinal things on him. I had to lie next to him. I was like giving him defibrillator with my thumb. And then the next day they said, Mrs. Wax, your son was asleep. Oh, my God. So I didn't read the manuals. No, yeah. that is no. clear. I have no idea what you're supposed to do with them. But my feminist thing was, I said to um, Eve Ensler, she came and she saw me and she said, how come you've never been in the vagina monologues? And I said, listen, I can say vagina. I just can't say my. <laughs> so mm. that, was, that wasn't cool at all. From a variety of bedrooms and kitchens via Zoom, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Rachel Bloom, and very special guest Ruby Wax, talking about hope! Woo! Yeah! This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White. With me is co-pilot Rachel Bloom. Very exciting. All the way from Los Angeles in America. And we're talking about hope. I will tell you, I will introduce her properly later when we're doing her segment. Our guest today is Ruby Wax. out later because most people know you Ruby as a comedian but you've got so many fancy degrees and glamorous things including an OBE um, and we also have the wonderful Rizzo who's doing music for us um, so Rachel yeah are, are you feeling hopeful at the moment you are in the United States of America we hear that yeah. you might be having some sort of election quite soon <laughs> please God tell me you're feeling hopeful please Look, the polls are hopeful. To be clear, I'm rooting for President Trump not to win. Um, oh, the polls are hopeful, but moment. the polls were... <laughs> I was like, shit, this has uh, taken a turn. Where are put you the right now, Ruby? On. Are you in America? No, I'm in an eco-community yeah. in Scotland. You're American. Rizzo, you're American. You're three yeah. American women. Oh, my I, God. I'm going to need a read from you right now about how likely it is that we are going to be seeing a Biden-Harris administration. And I'm going to need you to tell me we're definitely going to have that. Definitely. No question. Come on. Come on. And the Kamala. environment's going to be cleaned up. I, I, Rachel, yeah. everything like, is hopeful. I feel like good vibes, but it's very strange because, you know, I'm in upstate New York and you drive around and you still you see a lot of Trump 2020 and our, we're in our own little bubbles, so... I'm very hopeful. The polls look good, as Rachel said. And I've also been doing nightly rituals. Nightly rituals? What kind of rituals? Yes. Well, I light candles and I visualize Trump oh. literally leaving office in handcuffs. I live in an extremely liberal enclave. I, I live in uh, the Silver Lake Echo Park area of Los Angeles. I am surrounded by Black Lives Matter, Biden-Harris signage everywhere. I'm in Adam Schiff's district. Adam Schiff, as you know, was um, on the House Impeachment Committee. Like, I live in liberal America town, USA. Um, so I have to rely on the polls. That being said, the polls last time were misleading, but I do think there has been a turn. 
uh, over 200,000 Americans are dead of uh, COVID, my uh, songwriting partner being one of them. Uh, as you may know. Um, no, I, really? I, I mean, I know I messaged you at the time, but I wanted to say again, face to face, I'm so, so sorry. Thank you. Uh, Not to be a bummer on the Hope podcast. Deborah, remind me, were you at my show at the Palladium in London? Yeah, I, yeah, I met there? him. Yeah, yeah, I met him. I came yeah. on stage. That was so special. That was, that was like, because that was the last time I got to tour with him. And those Palladium shows were really incredibly special. But anyway, I, I think that his dismissal of, the virus is really, you know, turning people off uh, <laughs> to you say think? the least. Mm-hmm. I don't really understand. Look, I don't really understand voting for him. I mean, I, I theoretically understand why you voted for him in the first place, but there are a lot of articles about like suburban moms saying, Oh, he's not the person I thought he'd be. What? What, <laughs> what did you, yeah. what did you think he was? Think going he, to would be? he let us know exactly who he was from moment. There was no obfuscating who he was. So, Look, that looks hopeful. I have a seven-month-old daughter, so I wake up every day a little Congratulations. early. Thank you. She's going yes. through a little bit of a sleep regression. So sometimes it's, I wake up at 4.30, uh, but I wake up and I go to her room and she has no idea there is a virus. She has no idea the president is a scary, scary person. She's a baby. She's just, she's just interested. She's, she's enamored with our dog. I've I've never seen someone enamored with a dog as much as my daughter loves our dog. I'm trying to find things that are hopeful. You have to be hopeful because you have a newborn baby and that baby in 20 years is going to be a 20-year-old woman. And mm-hmm. we need, as feminists, to create a world that she wants to live in. We need to be the architects of that. We have to be. We can't just hope. We have to act. We have to vote if you're in America. And you have to get everyone you know to vote. You have to drive people to the polls if you can drive. Get people Ubers, whatever it is that you need to do to convince people who go, oh, they're all as bad as each other or Biden's not left wing enough or whatever. This is, We're talking about harm management here. Fewer people will be harmed. Biden is not going to yeah, give you everything talking- you want. But day one is the day you start taking Biden on and saying, hey, we want this, we want this, we want this. It's damage. Uh, the, the, it's exactly what you're saying. It's damage control. And look, I'm I'm with for the people, oh, not left wing enough. Like there's this local city council member in L.A. This is very inside baseball. No one will care. Named um, Nithya Rahman, who's backed by Bernie Sanders. And suddenly this is a city council election. Her opponent has been suddenly backed by Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton. It's a city council election, specifically because Bernie backed Nithya, right? So there there are still a lot of differences. But that being said, like, yeah, we're doing damage control here. Like, mm-hmm. this is a like a DEFCON 3000 uh, situation. And also, I think that Joe Biden and almost like more importantly, Kamala Harris, uh, because Joe Biden is quite old, will be great. Mm-hmm. As far as the hope thing, it's important to note that why one of the reasons we were so disappointed in 2016 was misogyny. I feel like we don't realize how much that impacted that election. It's just baseline misogyny against Hillary Clinton. Also, she had some likability issues. And Joe Biden is a completely different old white guy who's likable, you know, Clinton was from a dynasty of power and Trump got a lot of people in with the drain the swamp idea. And now he is the swamp. And so I, I feel very hopeful. Never that it- a more swampier man lived or walked the earth. He is the living, <laughs> breathing. Also, he's the first president not to have a dog in the White House in, I think, 100 years. That does it for me. Ah! Up until then, I was undecided. Oh, there's a whole movement like dogs for Biden. I got my dog a bandana because I I don't want to speak for my dog, but I know that if there were a choice between canine representation in the White House and not, she would choose the canine representation. Of course, of course. And now please welcome to the mic Deborah Francis White. Yay! Hope. 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 
What is there to be hopeful about in 2020? I hear you laugh hollowly while choking back tears from under your duvet while in the fetal position, eating leftover Easter eggs you just found in the back of the cupboard while searching for some kind of certainty that Donald Trump will be escorted from the White House on Wednesday the 20th of January by the big blue Twitter bird. Well, there's always good news somewhere if you're a feminist. You just need to know where to look for it. We know not to look in the news, I hear you cry, but do you? Do you? Today, today, the Pope sanctioned same-sex civil unions, bringing the famous rhetorical question, is the Pope a Catholic, into question. Asked about gay priests, he said, who am I to judge? Well, you're the Pope, mate. That's literally been the Pope's job since the first century, to judge others and find them wanting. I'm not sure you've got the hang of this gig, current Pope, but for whatever reason, the Pope's core values have been updated and rebranded, and that's going to make the lives of many LGBTQ plus young people around the world from Catholic families so much easier and warmer and more loving. And that is, ding, 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 some good, hopeful news. What else can we be hopeful about? Well, young people are better than they used to be. What is more hopeful than that? Literally what? A 14-year-old South Asian-American girl from Texas called Annika Chabrolu has discovered a molecule that can selectively bind to the spike protein of COVID-19. Binding and inhibiting this viral protein would potentially stop the virus entry into the cell, creating a viable drug target. She's been granted $25,000, which seems low, doesn't it? Seems low for someone who looks like they're going to cure COVID. Seems low. Um, But she's also been granted the title of America's top young scientist. And what do we love more than a title? She's also going to develop this with adult scientists to see if she can successfully work on some kind of way out of this unholy mess the grown-ups in charge have got her generation into. Now, if a 14-year-old young brown female scientist cracking this thing wide open doesn't fill your feminist heart with hope, she will no doubt come up with a cure for that too. She's just that freaking good. Why is Gen Z fundamentally better than Gen X and the boomers? No one fucking knows. We've led the way and they've gone, nah, you're good. We're going to try something different because we've educated ourselves with Wikipedia and made up a TikTok dance about how embarrassing you are. Fair Gen Z, fair. We will take it and your delicious vaccine, please. And finally today, I was asked in an interview how I felt about the fact that one in five young men in a recent poll in the UK had negative views about feminists. That's one in five Young men in a recent poll in the UK had negative views about feminists. And I was asked on a BBC show, how do I feel about that? And I said, I felt elated because that means four out of five young men don't have a problem with feminism. That seems huge to me. Imagine Fox popping young men in 1978 and asking them their views on feminists and finding Four in five saying, yeah, they're all right. Or even I totally am one myself. This means that in another five years, it might be one in 10 and then one in 20 that have a problem with feminism. That is absolutely huge. This is worth having a parade over. This is the hope we are needing. And we would have a parade if only it were legal. And finally, my biggest and most throbbing point of hope is that with this global disruption of capitalism for the most tragic of reasons in 2020, that maybe, just maybe, the human race is learning to put people over profit and that we are being forced to reinvent the world and become the architects of our destiny again. This is the time for feminism, not just to bring hammers to smash things down, but bricks to build the world we do want to live in. Can we reimagine the UK post a no-deal Brexit without hope? No. We heard the news that Boris Johnson is talking about resigning because he can't keep his children, at least six, at least six, we don't know how many he's got, at least six in private schools on a lowly prime minister's salary. Yes, there is hope Boris Johnson might resign because he's had too many children. Have we seen the polls in America? Yes. Do they give us hope? Of course. But, 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 Americans, you must do more than hope. You must vote and drive other people to the polls. You must make sure everyone who can vote does. Hope without action is just avoidance. Hope first, then act. And together we can make 2021 a year worth fighting for. Yay! Yay! That's my my starter for 10 on hope. I'm putting it out there. That was beautiful. Deborah Francis White, thank you for joining us today with that piece of writing. Thank you. Thank you. I wanted to write it myself to give myself some hope. So I had enough chutzpah to come on this show and deliver hope with it. Look my audience in the eye with some hope. Uh, Rachel, you've written a book, um, which I'm so excited about because I love your work so much. Could you tell us a little bit about this book and then read something from it? 
the book is called I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. Uh, and it's a really uh, about my relationship with normalcy, uh, what it sounds like from kind of childhood to the present day with a, a kind of bummer of an afterward. But it's uh, there's a lot about adolescence in it. And so I thought I would read aloud something that makes me incredibly squeamish, which is um, erotic poetry that I wrote when I was uh, age 12. And I remember writing it. I remember the moment. And I know that young me would be very upset at myself. So first of all, I just want to say I begin this diary entry with listing all of the naughty words I currently know. So I think I'm uh, 11 or 12. Um, it's labeled as vocabulary lesson. And the words I list are damn, hell, shit, fuck, bastard, ass, dick, and tits. So those are the current bad words that I know at that time. Uh, and then I write a warning. If anyone besides me reads this in the next nine years, they must die. But don't worry. It's, it's obviously been nine years. So you're safe. So then the poetry begins. I'm going to read this in my sultriest voice. Um, us wrapping our arms around each other, kissing passionately. Slowly, I come towards you. You wrap your hands around my waist, silently, but yet so closely, my arms on your shoulders, gazing into your eyes. It's very romantic. Suddenly, you stop, bend forward, and kiss me. I return the kiss. Our mouths slowly open. We kiss passionately now. I wrote our tongues touch, but then I crossed it out. And I was like, no, that's too much. That's too much. That's too much. I went, our arms and hands are involved. Love, love encased in lust and passion in this moment. And then I wrote, and many more, but I crossed it out, assumedly, because it was redundant, which I agree, on this night, forever by Rachel Bloom. And I crossed that out as to not own my work, even though who, if someone were reading this, it was clearly my diary. I will very quickly read, um, very quickly read the second poem. Oh, this is just labeled Fantasy 2. <laughs> okay. Moans and groans we utter down to the floor. We fall, touching, showing, skin, sweat, stimulation. Fireworks explode in our bodies. We are animals of, and then I crossed it out. So redacted? I don't know what we're animals of. <laughs> we hide, we hide nothing. Show all. Clothes on the floor. Shirts. Pants. All shedded. In one night of lust and sexual desire. Was it worth it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so, <laughs> but all it took was one night to have our true selves revealed. Thank you so much. Wow. Thank you. That's a powerful Thank writing. Thank you. Uh, could you tell us some other chapter titles that we can enjoy if we, uh, we pre-order this book? Oh, yeah. So that chapter was called When I Think About Anything I Touch Myself. Oh my God. Um, the next chapter is called okay now i'll talk about the ocd thing uh where i talk about my uh my mental health history starting at that age in a later chapter about romance there is a story of the first boy i had a crush on who uh, in order to get me to go away from him would start saying vaguely anti-semitic things to me even though he wasn't oh anti-semitic he was just trying to get me to go away and that chapter is called the future mrs nazi oh. um and then later on um I talk about my relationship with musical theater uh, in the form of a musical called How Can I Explain, uh, which you'll be able to listen to the musical online as you read it. I'm so excited about this. This is just the best news ever. And I am very hopeful that this book is going to give me some much needed both life and distraction and uh, escapism, but also new ways of thinking about mental health, which we really need right now because all of our mental health has suffered during COVID and during the lockdown. And we all need to find new ways of thinking about how we proceed and connect and uh, sit with ourselves. And I know that you always do this with such an entertaining flourish, Rachel. So I'm very excited. Uh, what's the book called and where can we get it? Uh, I want to be where the normal people are. And you can get it, I mean, wherever books are sold. I don't want to put in a plug for Amazon necessarily. Um, oh. There are. I actually just tweeted out uh, where you can buy it in the UK. 
Okay, we'll put it in the show notes and we'll put a link. Bezos has made $54 billion during lockdown, while so many Americans have lost their homes and jobs. $54 billion. I know. So, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but please don't buy it from Amazon. Please buy it from an independent bookshop or a chain of bookshops that you like, like Waterstones or Blackwells or, you know. Hello, Guilty Feminist. This is Deborah. As you probably know, I'm sometimes asked to go to conferences and speak to people in business about things like diversity and inclusion, creativity, and how you can better include yourself and include others. During lockdown, I've been delivering these talks from home, and now for the first time, I'm making some of these ideas available to everyone. I'll be doing three live Skill Booster webinars over Zoom every Thursday at 2 p.m. from the 12th to the 27th of November and you can get your tickets now. We've tried to make these as affordable as we can. If you've got a good job or you can get your company to pay for them, they're 60 quid each or all three for 150. If you're out of work or you're a student or an NHS worker, we have a small number available for just £10 each or £25 for all three. And if you support us on Patreon, you can get a special exclusive discount code there. For more information and to book, see the links in the show notes or on our website, guiltyfeminist.com. Our Be Well workshops are still running with amazing teachers running workshops on yoga, mindfulness and movement. Go to guiltyfeminist.com slash be hyphen well to book your place now. All the money goes to the teachers and the administrator. And lastly, our merch store is still open for business with all the Guilty Feminist mugs, t-shirts, notebooks and tote bags you could want. They all make excellent Christmas presents. And so does my book, The Guilty Feminist, available wherever books are sold. Thanks to everyone who's kept us going this year by supporting the podcast whether it's being a Patreon supporter, buying our merch, coming to our live shows, or just being a listener and telling other people about the show. If you've rated, reviewed and subscribed, look, honestly, we couldn't keep doing it without you. So thank you very much indeed. And now back to the podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Our guest today is a comedian, author, TV writer and performer for over 25 years. She additionally holds a master's degree in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy from Oxford University. Fancy. Yeah, yeah, but I only went three years ago. Gone. Oh, it doesn't yeah. matter when you went. You Better still got a degree from Oxford. Better late. And was awarded an OBE in 2015 for her services to mental health. To date, she has sold over one million copies of her books worldwide. That's almost bragging. I think that's lying. <laughs> Please welcome the incredible Ruby Works. Woo. Whoa. Thank you, three uh, people. <laughs> Ruby, yeah. can you give us a pricey of what your book's about and how it might play into Hope for is. Us right now? Here it is. I happen to have it on my lap. Uh, I wrote this. It's called... I just, I have it tattooed on my behind too, but I wrote it a couple of years ago before the pandemic and it's called, and now for the good news to the future with love. And um, it says in the back, dear reader, I know what you're thinking. Is it some kind of macabre joke? Has she been in a coma? How can Ruby Wax write a book about good news when the world is facing the worst disaster? It's the plague. Let me explain. I began writing in 2018, back when the world's worries were somewhat different. Climate change, not that different. Crap politicians, mental health. These are still big issues. But even the ancient soothsayers reading pig entrails couldn't have predicted this. This is my new mission, to share the green shoots of hope peeping through the soil of civilization. Literacy is at its all-time high. World hunger is likely to be eradicated this century. Technology improvements are saving lives just to scratch the surface. I've talked to everybody from leaders to scientists to tech geniuses. I've done the research and practiced what I preach. And my conclusion behind the clouds, the, st- the sun still shines. So we don't have to get on our rockets yet, Mr. Musk. Anyway, what I did was I went around the world 
to find where the good news is in community, in business, in tech, in food, and in, um, oh, in education. So I, I got to see, you know, what's coming that isn't always rolling our eyes and going, you know, we, we're almost addicted to one disaster after another. And I sort of did it for my life. I think where you put your attention defines who you are. So for two years, I've been really happy going to education in Finland and seeing what they're doing. I mean, I met the minister of education and he said, you know, we don't need Nobel Prize winners and we don't need people who run big banks, but we want everybody to feel safe. And then there's schools in the UK where they're teaching kids empathy. And these kids come from really disadvantaged neighborhoods. And it was so it's heart wrenching that the kids First of all, they learn to lower their stress. They do a little mindfulness. And the teachers say there's no such thing as a stupid question. So no low self-esteem, because those are the kids that are going to think out of the box. And then even in business, I worked at Patagonia, not the country. It was a sportswear company. But for 40 years, they have totally been walking the talk. Everything is recyclable. And when you buy something from them, the ad is, please don't buy anything else. If there's a tear, send it back. We'll fix it and then send it back to you. Everyone's connected to an environmental cause. And the buildings are placed so that the schools for their kids are just below them. So they say when they hear their kids laugh, they know why they're, they're trying to work for a better future. I mean, everybody was really breathtaking. So this is the end of my book. Is I might just read it. Um, yeah, the end of it. It's... Um, Look at how quickly we can transform ourselves almost overnight. We can communicate information and act on it within minutes. Too bad we didn't stop using plastic bottles as fast as we learned to hoard loo rolls. But nevertheless, I think we're much humbler now. Compassion also spreads like a virus. Last night, everybody did a clap for the NHS at 8 p.m. You could hear the love swooping down the street. I was more connected with my neighbors then than the entire time I've lived there. My hope is that we remember these feelings of interconnectedness and caring for each other and can possibly keep them going when this is over. The sense of togetherness isn't a new invention. The fact is that everyone and everything really is connected from the world wide web to interlinked fungus below the soil, to particles in the universe, to all the cells in our bodies working as a team to keep us alive. About 14 billion years ago or thereabouts, a big bang happened, beginning from something microscopic to something doubling in size every trillionth of a second to create the universe. Elements were dispersed from the explosion, mainly hydrogen and helium, and within three minutes created 98% of all matter that there is or will ever be. Everything, including each of us and the stars above, is more or less made up of these elements. A star could be your cousin. We are all connected and network in this universal lattice of life. So, I mean, it really, it's what, I mean, you can choose to look at the bad news and that'll just poison us forever. You know, it's, it's toxic, but also compassion is a virus. And just on the mental health thing, if I could plug this every night, I do um, something called Frazzled Cafes, which began about four years ago, but now it's on Zoom. And I do three times a week, but there's hosts who do daily meetings all the time that you can sign up for. And the idea is that people just speak from the heart. They talk about, I call it the weather conditions in their mind. You're not allowed to talk about politics, but it breaks your heart when people are so authentic. And there's young and there's old and there's different ethnicities and there's every kind of sexuality. And when somebody's speaking that honestly, you see the heads nodding and we don't notice any differences anymore. And it's kind of, if I didn't have it, I'd feel really, I'd feel lost. And it helped me during the pandemic is to connect so much and see the whites of their eyes. And in real life, I never connected like that. I always pretended I was fine. So these are my people. And if anybody would like to come on, you just go on frazzledcafe.org and it's free. And um, boy, does it give you hope in humanity. So you go to frazzlecafe.org. Frazzlecafe.org. And people just share how they're feeling and get support and connect. And it's free. It's not therapy. No, they just speak and say, this is what's going on for me right now. I'm locked in. I have five children. It's making me crazy. Other people say, oh, um, my aunt died, you know, and we couldn't actually help her. So we watched her die through a window. I mean... Sometimes it's not heavy. Sometimes it is. And by speaking from the heart, people say, I've never felt heard before. Or, you know, I always thought I was invisible. 
And now I feel like people really care, but one after the other. And then there's breakout rooms where people really bond. I have to tell you, we have to do things that make us connect. One chapter is about community, and I'm living in one now. I'm in Scotland because I like the idea of everybody having each other's backs. And every day I work in a vegetable field where all the food goes to a food bank because I really, you know, I want to feel part of something. That was always my dream. I always felt tribeless. And now I just love these people. Okay, they're not all my type, but the thing is, the only thing that's going to save us is community. I mean, humans were born to bond. Very interesting. Mm. Rachel, have you found this, do you recognize what Ruby's saying about community? Because you've had a baby and your, you know, closest friend and collaborator, I would imagine, Adam, passed away from COVID. Did you feel like there was an, a, a sort of heightened awareness in your community of coming together? Did you feel a connection beyond what you had felt before? I felt the lack of it. Not in a way that like no one was supportive. I just, because we're in a, a pandemic right now and, and everything I was really connecting with everything Ruby was saying, I mean, I, I about radical compassion and, and I, I try and strive to live that same way. And I, I learned so much from other people around me and especially the other people I've met through doing Crazy X and people I've met, especially in the community of people who have a borderline personality disorder and are actively working through it with dialectical behavioral therapy. Like I've just learned so much, but, but I digress. Um, between having a baby and losing somebody, those are communal things. You're supposed to, when you have a baby, people are, it takes a village. You're supposed to yeah. be holding the baby and people come over and you have them hold the baby and they help. And you all kind of do it together. And then grieving, I mean, Shiva, like that's yeah. why in every community you, you grieve together. And instead, the day that Adam died, my daughter had been home from the hospital only a couple days because she was in the NICU for five days. And our other writing partner, Jack, came by with his wife and they stood 14 feet away on the other side of the fence. Because at that time, we didn't know the six feet thing. We didn't know this was like in early April we had just been in a hospital. So we were, you know, the most at risk people. And so I held the baby, they stood 14 feet away. And that's how we grieved that day. So I have very much felt the lack of like what's supposed to be happening. Yeah. Both with having a baby and with grieving. And so I felt a ton of beautiful empathy and compassion coming my way in the form of texts and calls and, and then food Everyone was, you know, baking bread in the early part of the pandemic. So we were recipients of a lot of that bread, which was great. But that's been the hardest part is the unnatural feeling of, oh, this is not how this is supposed to go. Mm -hmm. I hope when we come out, everybody sort of practiced, you know, with their hearts going to the next person. I think we were lonely before the pandemic, but nobody addressed it. You know, a lot of people felt yeah. that they had to put on an act because you don't want to be a burden for your family or your friends. So where was the place where we could say, you know, just be what we are? I mean, maybe you have, but uh, my life was bullshit. You know, I don't it's interesting. I don't really. The, it's all changed. Like this is the first I've lost grandparents, but this is the first time I'm and I'm blessed in this way to to have experienced grief in this way of someone close to me suddenly dying. And then I had a child. So my life was upended or my life completely changed simultaneous with the pandemic. So I don't, I can't really almost compare the two because no. I don't know anything different, but I, I've felt people reaching out and a lot of love for people. And I also, I would be driven mad if I bought into like the polarization of people. I really do try to find the good. Cause I also believe that most people believe they're the hero of their story. I think that, most that's what people I have personally frazzled. found. Yeah, it's all how we see the world. But there are people that really, I mean, I wrote a book called Frazzled and it isn't stress. It isn't anxiety. It's the voice. This is a new phenomena that says I shouldn't be stressed. Nobody else is stressed. I'm not good enough. God bless you. You know that if you didn't have that and boy, have you been traumatized, you know. But do you have a bubble, Rachel? Of people like a pod, yeah. Do you yeah. have a bubble now? Um, yeah. Well, I, and I had look. I had. I we have a nanny now, so like we have nanny in the bubble. Um, there are people we see occasionally, but we're not really like potted up with anybody. It's weird. It's weird because 
there's ample testing, but okay, if you're going to get tested, you want to make sure you're reasonably isolating five days before because there's an incubation period, right? So it's this math. So it's, we're in these occasional pods because someone will go to the grocery store, someone will do a thing. In California, we had a huge rise in it. Now the numbers are low. So we're in these, but what, we, what, what helps is we have, a, we have a front lawn. And so we see people on the front lawn. And that's how my parents have met their granddaughter. That's how my husband's sister has met her niece. Because uh, my parents are, they want to be careful. They go to the grocery store, so they haven't held her yet. They have my parents, her. Oh, wow. No, they haven't. They oh, just want to be, so it's, they're, just, they're just afraid and want to be careful. And, yeah. then, and then his sister worked a lot with people. And so, again, like, this isn't natural. Like, this isn't, this isn't the way that, I mean, what in life is the way you picture it, but... And then my husband's parents, they're still on the East Coast. They don't want to get on a plane because they're both in their 60s. And yeah, they don't want to get on a flight. And likewise, like driving across the country, this is a big country, which we talk about, like, what are the problems with America? We're a huge fucking country. We're really big. And one place in America does not represent another place in America. So we talk about, like, I don't know anyone who's a Trump voter. That's, yeah, America's huge. (laughs) <laughs> like there's a lot so, of landlocked states and i think uh, if you're not against water it makes you a little crazy <laughs> that's, that's a hot crazy. take that's a hot take sure um, can i just ask ruby in your research because you are brilliant at researching this kind of thing and thinking about this kind of thing how does feminism activism active compassion all of these wonderful forces is there anything in your book or anything in your research that would give us clues as how to behave in the future to make us feel more connected? Because if we are in a situation like Rachel, she's got a brand new baby, she's physically not legally allowed and the people in her life don't feel safe coming and sitting in her living room, cuddling her baby and someone getting her a cup of tea and, you know, someone changing the channel. You know, if she feels that, like, as many, many people listening and new mothers and new parents listening must feel this, is there anything that we can do to create greater connection? Because it sounds like your book's got lots of wonderful advice about how people are becoming more compassionate and more connected. Uh, Have you got any recommendations? You know, so many books say we should be this way. You know, we should be more compassionate. And and we go, yeah, we should be. But I'm sort of, the book is a Michelin guide. If you want to actually go to those places, look it up, take ideas. For Mm. example, In the businesses that I was involved with, Patagonia has more women vice presidents and presidents than than any male. I mean, they are trying to walk the talk. The communities that I visited, it's all under something called GEN, which is Global Eco Network. And there's 10,000 of them, some in favelas, some in tribes, some in New York, some in, I'm in one now. But in order, not only do they go for zero emissions, but in order for them to give the support, Jen, the uh, community have to agree on equality, authenticity, and transparency. So imagine in African tribes, they will not give any support unless those women (laughs) have a say just as much as the men. So what I looked at was the people who really are acting this way, you know, of what Jen is doing, of what I went with these fantastic women from um, it's choose love. It's an agency. And we went to Samos to the refugees and these women who are my gods, you know, they're, they have the eyes of what I look like when I was 18 and they're hands on grassroots. There's no big organization where you have to buy, you know, 200 pounds of plate to see Sharon Stone. These girls are on the ground and they have data about if they need a sewer there, they know who to call. If they need a shower, they know who to call. And I mean, I'm telling you, just to be around them. I mean, I'm going back. That's uh, is this women choose love? Is this, is it, did you go out with choose Josie? Love. Yeah, choose love. Yeah, I went out with Josie as well. Josie's a really good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I went out to Moria, which uh, sadly burnt down recently, but it was yeah. an extraordinary operation. I mean, a very hard place to live, but without these amazing grassroots operations who were you know, it's building sewage systems and, yeah. you know, like all sorts of things that were happening there. With, you know, it was unlivable and it now is unlivable because people are now living in flooded car parks. We do need to do something. We do need to do more. It's- choose Love is, you know, again, it's a group of women who just, you know, taken, taken the reins. These eco-communities have to have equality. The business I work with, and there's a lot in the UK, I mean, Dove Soap, they work with girls in 
uh, schools, you know, with body dysmorphia. Ben and Jerry's works with refugees. You know, mm-hmm. it's tiny little shoots. They may not grow, but at least, you know, with my book. <laughs> and now for the good news, I can tell you where they are. Mm-hmm. And if we don't nurture them, we're, we're screwed. I mean, the book, that sounds like it's full of not just hope, but identifying where the best practices are now, who is leading the charge, how they're doing it and what the results are. And so if we get a copy of that, we could start to develop that. But I'm interested in modelling some of those ideas just in my local community and, you know, in the way that we work with the Guilty Feminist. I'm just interested in how we can model best practice. You know, in the old days when we sat around the tribe, you know, with the tribe after a hard day's hunt, you know, and either you'd be lunch or you had, you're having lunch. We all had each other's backs. You know, that was in the human DNA to do this. The women, right, were the nurturers. That's what their job was. The men were off doing whatever they did. But, you know, if we can start, let's say when this is over, there are empty churches, there are empty town halls, and I've already seen it start to happen. And to organize groups. I know we have to stay apart now, but not to organize the next fate where they, I don't know, have a goat race, but to organize, pick up the garbage or go and knock on people's windows, you know, who might need help. I think this is something that really women can take the reign now. I mean, certainly with Extinction Rebellion, again, women were running it. And okay, there's, you know, people that try to ruin the reputation, but the hearts were in the right place. A lot of the movements I joined and the businesses I was interested in, the communities I was involved with, I I went to see some in Africa. Those women went from being treated like, you know, just the cook are now running these tribal communities. So along with all this comes equality. That sounds very interesting. And I I just need to read some good news at the moment. I do need to read some things that are going right. It's in the book. Ruby, is there anything you came to say today that you didn't get to say that you'd like to leave on the table? Oh, God, it's hard because we can either be funny about it, which, you know, I never know which way to swing. Do I do one liners or do I talk about what means a lot? You've done a little both tonight. We're we're very happy. And I try to avoid things that will instill anger. Do do you know what I mean? I won't have certain political conversations about Boris or whatever. Let other people do that in me my heart starts clamping and I'm no good. You know, when we get too riled up, you know, this part of the brain just goes into cortisol gusher and we don't make sense anymore. And I think that's what's happened in the world is that we're so stuffed full of news, bad news. It's incoming that we pick these kind of maniac leaders thinking they'll protect us from the bad news, not realizing they're the cause of it. Mm -hmm. I think that we've been bumped up with too much fear And now somehow, you know, and I see it in those education systems. All right. You don't have to send your kid there, but use some of those ideas. Those parents can learn how to give the kids tool to cool their little brains enough so they can think clearly because my generation didn't. Amazing. Rachel, is there anything you came to say that you didn't get to say? We've talked about a lot of wonderful things. I just I really connect with what Ruby's saying and uh, not to plug my own book once again. But in (laughs) I I I talk a lot about um, there's a kind of almost like magazine quiz in a section of my book that's like, quick, there's a lion in the bushes. What do you do? A, you run away. B, you throw someone else to the lion. And it's basically the way I talk about dealing with like bullying or dealing with other people mm. stepping on you and the inability of if you feel that there's a lion in the bushes, when you feel threatened, you can't free associate, you can't be creative, you can't be yourself. And that's like a kind of big theme of my book is I've never been the type of person to be cool under pressure. I call them like zingaroos. I've never been a person that when I get zinged, I'm like, well, but I just go like, well, and you smell like poop. And uh, like my brain doesn't function well under that kind of pressure or bullying. I, I, all I can do is think about how can I get away from the lion in the bush? So I just really identify with what Ruby was saying, but um, I don't know. We talked about a lot. Anything you want to know from me, Deborah? <laughs> Anything um, I should do as a co-host? We love Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and we miss it. Are you making anything else for TV for us? I have a sketch series I want to pitch all about the clitoris and female pleasure. So I'm nice. going to be pitching that in a little bit. Do you um, have a title a for lot. that? Because our listeners are going to want to know. Yes. Again, I haven't pitched it yet, but it's called And Introducing the Clitoris. Because <laughs> there is a lot we still don't know about that a very essential body part. Um, and so that's uh, that. I'm really excited about Good luck. So that. Good luck. Oh, boy. It should be Thank like you. Sesame Street. We dress up as puppet clitorises. 
Oh, that's a good idea. You know what? There's Just actually an idea. Sex, there's a sex doctor I know, this doctor, Lori Mintz, who's written a really good book called Becoming Cliterate, who has a vulva puppet. Oh, that's a good uh, and she makes it And she makes it talk, and it's really great. Oh, I love this. I love this. Yeah. Ruby and Rachel, you have been absolutely fantastic. Give it up, everyone. Thank you. Ruby Wax and Rachel. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Rizzo is going to now sing us a song. Rizzo, yes, uh, can you tell us, first of all, how are you? I'm all right. Yeah, yeah. Right now, um, this is Wyndham Garnet, by the way, Hello, who's Wyndham. accompanying me. Hi, Wyndham. And we're in a sauna right now. Are you in an actual sauna? We're in an actual sauna. But not yeah. turned on because you're in a very glamorous outfit. No, we're just like hoping to lose some water weight during this podcast. <laughs> no, it's not turned It's not turned off. And uh, Wyndham is very handsome, but you can't see his face because he's got a mask on. He has um, got a mask on. Do you have anything to plug? Anything to tell oh, the audience? Anything you yes, want us yes, to? Yes, yes, yes. I know that you're on Patreon as well, Deborah. but that's been my big uh, quarantine project is I've launched my own Patreon which in this time, live performances, we don't know when we're ever going to get them back. And so, uh, you know, performance artists that rely on touring, we don't have, you know, the income from record sales anymore. And so now we're in a dangerous situation. And any performer that has launched something like this, please support them. But especially me, it's patreon.com slash Rizzo loves. And my website is Rizzo.love. Yes, there is a dot love. We can let go of the dot com for a little bit. I've been so inspired by podcasts for so long, and I finally got it together to start my own podcast, which is also being presented as one of the things you get on the Patreon. It's called Baptized in Glitter. It's basically the attempt to capture the feeling of an artist salon, you know, so everyone must wear caftans and drink luxurious beverages. And it's a one-on-one conversation with me and some incredible artists from around the world where we just have intimate Uh, discussions of how we thrive and survive in this world because we all need to know how everyone else is finding the tools to thrive and survive. Absolutely wonderful. Rizzo, we are right there with you. I can't wait. I'm going to sign up to your Patreon as soon as I get off this call and I'm definitely going to come to Baptized in Glitter. Oh, yeah. Um, And it's Rizzo with one Z, just so you know, like Rizzo with a one Z. I wear one Z a lot as well. Ah, very good. So if you're in Britain, it's R-I-Z-O dot love. Z- oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And if you're in America, it's R-I-Z-O. Whatever your linguistic persuasion, check out Rizzo. Chuck something in her Patreon and get a hold of that. Because I think, I just feel like live music, live stream music at the moment is really doing something for my soul. It's feeding my soul of something that's been taken away because of lockdown. I don't know what it is, but it's speaking to me. Music speaking to me more than it's ever spoken to me in my life. What song are you going to sing for us today? I'm going to start with a song of a certain hope. It's really about longing through technology, you know, uh, because it's a very modern, modern torch song. And I'm a torch singer. I love to pine professionally. <laughs> and so, yeah, this is a song, a yearning song for our time. Okay, let's have it. I'm so excited. <laughs> I Google you When it's late at night And I don't know what to do I find photos You've forgotten you were in Put up by your friends I Google The day is done and there's nothing left to do. I read your journal that you kept that month in France. <laughs> I've watched you dance. I have watched you dance. And I'm pleased your name is practically unique. There's only you and a would-be PhD. Chesapeake who writes papers on the structure of the sun I have read each one 
that I should let you fade. But there's that box and there's your name. Nothing seems to make the pain grow less or fade or disappear. I should save my soul and crawl back in my hole. But it's too easy just to fold and type your name again. I Google you Whenever I'm alone And feeling blue And each scrap of information That I gather seems to say You have found somebody new shouldn't matter I want to blow up my computer but I don't I just sigh and Google you Where yeah. can we get that? Can we download that? Yeah, that's on oh, my I'm first choosing. album, Violet. And um, I wish I could say I wrote it, but my dear friend uh, Neil Gaiman wrote it with his um, wife, Amanda Palmer. And very gracious to those two people for writing that song. And then this uh, next song, because it's Halloween and because this is a panel of Americans, I thought I would sing a song about a spooky side of Los Angeles. Rizzo, take it away. All right. Well, this song is on my my second album, Indigo. My first album's called Violet. Second's called Indigo. I'm doing a color series. It was basically a way to like prove to myself that I will, before I die, make um, seven albums. So um, this is, uh, yeah, this is a song about Los Angeles and also some of the spirits, the lonely spirits that haunt it. There's a place lost in time where the concrete and vine rustles under an empty blue sky where successes and fakes go to make their mistakes far away from the cruel public eye past past the red velvet rope pink champagne lines of coke Grab a drink, catch a glimpse of a thigh But behind every thrill Lies a terrible chill Of the dream that refuses to die Now and forever Prisoner of Babylon Pray that you'll never Meet the ghost of the Chateau Marmont. <laughs> she was shiny and new, not so different from you. Wide-eyed and fresh off of the farm. Golden hair, warm like honey. She didn't have money, but she'd light up the room with her charm. But her soul was no match for a town that can snatch all your hopes and give none in return. Casting couches and pills are certain to kill as the Hollywood hills are to burn. Chateau Marmont, 
Night after night she wanders the halls Searching for fortune and fame Should her life sound familiar at all You wouldn't know her by name No one ever knew her by name No one ever knew her by name Prisoner of Babylon, pray that she'll never be the ghost of the Chateau Marmont. Pray that you'll never be a ghost of the Chateau Marmont. <laughs> oh, that was great. That was Absolutely great. Amazing. Thank yeah. you, my audience of three. So really Wyndham Garnet. Wyndham Garnet. Wyndham Garnet, everybody. Rizzo, that was just you have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Rachel Bloom, and our very special guest Ruby Wax with music from Rizzo and Wyndham Garnet. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Selinsky for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Croft for GDTC and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Woo! You're all amazing. Absolutely amazing. And I, I feel very privileged to have had you all. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Rachel Bloom, and our very special guest Ruby Wax with music from Wizzo. Oh, bugger. Thanks to everyone who is supporting us on Patreon at the Smash the Patriarchy level or above, John Corcoy and Sarah Boom. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.